Yeah, at the same time, why do you think this particular era alone has caused such devastating effects within the church? You know, I think about this is not the only time we've had um, polarizing issues, polarizing politicians. Um, you know, but why do you think this, this particular area has caused such devastating effects within the church? Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter, so each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your CBF Podcast host, and this year we're celebrating our seventh year of the podcast, bringing you even better interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online, share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Pasadena, California, Louisville, Kentucky, Beaverton, Oregon, and Frankfurt, Germany. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout-out to some of our listener supporters, including Carson Fushi, Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlore, Trip Hawthorne, Carla Mike Wick, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. This podcast is presented to you by Central Seminary. A historic Baptist seminary founded in Kansas that now is diverse, cross-cultural, and ecumenical with a significant global footprint. Leading with the values of community, empathy, growth, and tenacity, Central Seminary equips students with the theological knowledge, spiritual insight, and practical skills needed to lead in an ever-changing world. We cultivate an inclusive, multi-language community of reflection where critical thinking and discernment are welcomed and encouraged. Central offers numerous graduate degrees and certificates, including Doctorate of Ministry in Creative Leadership, Master of Arts in Counseling, Certificates in Chaplaincy Studies, and Peace and Justice Ministries, and much more. Most programs are offered fully online. To learn more, visit cbts.edu or search for Central Seminary Kansas City. Our guest for this week's CBF Podcast Conversation is Bonnie Christian. She's a journalist contributing to Times. CNN, The Week, Politico, The Hill, Relevant Magazine, Rare, The American Conservative. She's formerly the deputy editor at The Week and currently a fellow at the Defense Priorities. She has authored several books, including A Flexible Faith and a soon-to-be-released book in October. That'll be the point of our conversation today. Bonnie, thank you for joining the conversation. Yeah, thank you again for having me. So we last had you on the podcast. Uh, you were pregnant with twins and we're about <laughs> to release a new book, A Flexible Faith. Uh, anything else of note in the last three years? Oh man. Um, well, we moved from Minnesota to Pittsburgh, so that was a big one. Um, and, uh, I, I left the week I'd been there for almost eight years and left there in May. Um, and I think I wasn't writing for Christianity today, perhaps when I last spoke with you, but I have a column there now. So those are kind of the, the three big ones other than the new book. 
Yeah. So you went from one form of cold to another form of cold in the wintertime. <laughs> I've been to Pittsburgh in the wintertime and it's, it's no joke whatsoever. Yeah. It doesn't, it's not the same deep cold and definitely the winter is like a good month, month and a half shorter, at least by like our Minnesota train standards where when it hits like 40, we're like, Oh, spring's here. Time for short sleeves. Um, but the, it's so hilly that even the much less snow is so much more dangerous and like terrifying to drive where, you know, Minnesota, there's snow all the time, but it's completely flat. And so, you know, you just do what you want and it's whatever, but here you take your life into your hands every time you go to target. <laughs> um, all right. So tell me a little bit more. What, what, what is the defense priority and, and what kind of work do you do there? Um, so defense priorities is a foreign policy think tank. Um, and most of what I do is write uh, like op-eds, opinion pieces that someone else very nicely uh, does the work of finding a, a media outlet that wants to publish it for us, um, which is uh, great not to have to do that myself. Um, and then just recently, I've also started writing like a, a weekly email newsletter for them. Um, and occasionally I, I'll like edit some scholars big white paper on some subject. Um, but most of the time, it's it's pretty similar to what I do everywhere else, which is, you know, write 800 words of what I think on some subject. I'm, I'm sure you, you all have had your hands full with um, Ukraine situation going on. And then of course, the uh, exciting uh, threats that were coming from China as Nancy Pelosi was uh, visiting Taiwan. Uh, yeah, the week that we were recording this. All Taiwan, all the, all the time for the past week or so. So what are you guys trying to tackle through through that kind of work? I mean, um, is you know, are, are you advocating for a certain thing? You're trying to create research, uh, clear research for folks. What, what, what's the what's the kind of tip of the spear, if you will? Yeah, um, I would say generally our interest is promoting um, restraint and and realism in foreign policy. Just thinking about like what can American military power actually accomplish? Um, and maybe should we have a little bit more humility about that given you know, some of the, the things in the past 20 years in the post 9-11 era that didn't exactly play out as they were supposed to. <laughs> I can't think of a single thing that you guys <laughs> can point to in the last 20 years that uh, would give you guys you know, years of, of writing material. Yeah, it's uh, it's a, uh, it's tough, but we we scrape some things together. <laughs> just, just bottom of the barrel. Nothing to research there yeah. on any of those <laughs> topics. So, um, well, let's let's shift gears. Let's talk about your new book. Uh, it's releasing in October. Untrustworthy. This book journeys into an era of misinformation, slanted facts um, on social media, cable news, talk radio, podcasters, and those who read and watch their content. You wrote, "We don't know what is true." what is knowable, what is trustworthy. Our information environment is chaotic and overwhelming, rife with conspiracy theories, fake news, habit-forming digital manipulation. It's breaking our brains, polluting our politics, and corrupting Christian community. Um, you're, you're tackling a, a pretty big uh, systemic um, and psychological issue within our era. What, 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 you know, gave you a sense of calling to write about this? Yeah, well, so I, it was a couple things. Some of it was that I, I just sort of found myself returning to what I gradually realized were related topics in my writing pretty frequently. Um, and, you know, 
I, I wrote, for example, an article about shame and guilt, and then um, I had some pieces about gullibility and in connection to like election meddling stuff on social media. Um, and then I, after the, the 2020 election, I, I wrote a piece about um, polling and, and like the uncertainty in that knowledge, but how we want it to be so precise because there's like percentages and it's, it feels like, you know, this is a mathematical truth that we have that we can believe um, and yet it gets things wrong. And I gradually started realizing that like a lot of these, even, even things that didn't necessarily seem as strictly about knowledge and confusion and truth as something like that polling article, a lot of them were really connected to uh, this broader idea of like, how are we taking in information? How are we figuring out what we know, what we believe to be true? Um, and so, it, you know, I, at that point, I sort of began pursuing those topics um, more deliberately and, and thinking about this as a, like a coherent situation, a coherent problem to be addressed. And I also started, it, it also came from just like experiences in my own life, um, conversations that I was having with family and friends. Um, you know, a, I have a, a, a cousin, for example, whom I've written about, who he, he actually hasn't done it in a little while now, but he spent years emailing me, um, like forwarding me these very long emails that were just like all false <laughs> um, information that you could find out, you know, were false by, by Googling pretty quickly. Um, and I, I've, I've written about, like, I had this quandary of, you know, am I, am I failing him by, by not saying that these are wrong? Um, but also I don't have time to spend like the hours of research it would take every week to demonstrate things for him. Um, and, you know, arguing about it probably isn't going to improve our already pretty distant relationship. Um, and so thinking about things like that and, and talking with friends who were experiencing um, similar quandaries about like, what do I say to my family member who is believing things that I'm pretty sure are just completely false, like complete lies. Um, all of that made me realize that it, it wasn't just sort of like an academic question. It wasn't just something for like me to write about in journalism, something that, that uh, you know, we can sort of talk about as a problem out there. It was a problem that like a lot of us were experiencing in our families, in our communities, and even in our churches as well. Hmm. Well, I want, I want, I want to break down kind of each of those pieces in that sentence, uh, breaking our brains, polluting our politics and corrupting Christian community. And that last piece we're going to come back to in just a bit. It, it, it's not uh, that some news outlets are very clearly slanted in one direction for a particular worldview. It's the fact that you have politicians telling people not to trust their own memory and events they've witnessed, let alone election results that uh, would take a conspiracy on the scale like we've never seen before to pull off with Oh, by the way, no paper trail or no witnesses. <laughs> um, you know, so let's, what are, you know, for those that maybe are listening to this and maybe they don't see it from their particular angle, what are the biggest contributors to this era of untrustworthiness? Yeah, I mean, if I had to pick like a single biggest thing, I would say the rise of the internet as as the main means by which a lot of us get our information, but I think it, it affects you even if you're not a big internet user. And the reason is that even if like you just like to listen to talk radio in your car, the people who are making that show, um, be that the host or like the interns and the producers, the people who, who are sort of behind the scenes, those people are on the internet all day. And so even if you're not on the internet all day, our entire 
like news and information environment is shaped by people who are. And, you know, a lot of it is about just the sheer quantity of information that we are just like blasting in our own faces all day, every day. Um, you know, it's, we, we never sort of paused as a society and said like, hey, can we handle this much information? Can we parse truth from lies at this scale? Um, are we like, are our brains capable of dealing with this? Um, we just forged on ahead and it was, you know, all very exciting. And I very much include myself in this. I mean, I can remember in like the early 2000s, uh, very earnestly insisting to my mom that Facebook was a good thing. Um, and we weren't prepared for it. Like we, we just, we do not have the, the skills um, as a society. And I think in most cases individually to, to like be using the internet as much as we do and to be in an informa information environment that is so high volume and so constant, um, we, we don't, we're not really capable of processing that well, I think. What's wrong with the news? Uh, what's wrong with the way that that we consume the news? I know that sounds like a, such a silly question, and um, well, it sounds like a huge question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> tackle that in thirty seconds. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, yeah. What's what's wrong with the oh, news? Man. What's wrong with the way we consume the news? You yeah, know, I, I think it even in you know as a person, you know, you've been a journalist for for many many years. You know, I feel like there's been a, a shift, um, you know, mainly as an observer of the news. Um, mm -hmm. I wouldn't consider what we do here news uh, with the podcast. Um, you know, so what are those shifts that have taken place? What's happening with it? What's yeah. wrong with the way that we consume it? Yeah, so I think that there's there's two sides of this problem, right? Like there's the production side and there's the consumption side. And like to really overgeneralize, typically you see people on the right blaming the production side and people on the left blaming the consumption side. So like from the right you hear, well, the problem is that, that all the journalists are leftists and they're biased and they're lying to you to advance their political agenda. And then from the left you hear like, well, all the Republicans are stupid and they're believing Russian lies and they're spreading misinformation on Facebook. Um, I think there is, uh, there are, those critiques are maybe not exactly right, um, but there, there are problems on both sides. So on the production side, you know, I, polling shows that Americans overwhelmingly think that the problem is political bias and deliberate political bias, like that, that journalists are out here deliberately lying because they want their side to win in politics. Um, I would say from having like been inside a mainstream newsroom, I was at the week, as I said, for almost eight years. And so it was a small outfit, um, but, you know, very much mainstream, um, our staff overwhelmingly center left to far left. Uh, that is just not the situation. Like there is journalists are legitimately, you know, obviously you can find exceptions. You can find egregious examples of, of people who are just lying. Um, but generally speaking, I would say journalists are, are, are actually still concerned with, with being accurate, with being factually correct, with sharing the truth. Um, but there are uh, problems in the industry. Um, they're just a little bit more mundane. So a big one that, that I would point to is speed, um, the way that, that you are expected to crank out stories all day long, every day. Things 
happen, things go wrong when you're writing at that pace. They just do, especially with early career journalists who are frequently expected to, to write, you know, three, four, five articles a day, maybe even more than that. One time I wrote 18 short articles in a day. Um, now they were like 300 words each and I was not doing like original reporting, but 18 articles. I mean, that, that it's going to be difficult to, to maintain complete accuracy at that pace. Um, you know, another one is journalists need to make money. And it used to be that newspapers were a cash cow because it was the only really good place to advertise in, in local areas. Now that's extremely not the case. The ad money is gone and or massively reduced. You have to get much higher traffic to make the same money. Um, and so that promotes sensationalism. It promotes writing things that you know people will click on. Um, so, you know, these are, these are problems. They, they can create mistakes. Uh, they can create errors. Um, but there, it's, not, it's not deliberate lies. And it's, it also, you know, there are, there are other ones as well that I, I detail in the book. I think those are two big ones to think about um, that are sort of like politically and morally, um, well, I won't say morally neutral, but politically neutral, certainly. Um, but they also lead us to, to the other side of this, which is the consumption side, right? Because as news consumers, the way we, where we click, where we spend our money, that sends messages about how the industry should work. And so if we are clicking on those sensationalist headlines, if we are demanding 18 articles a day, and overwhelmingly we are, um, media consumption has increased even as media, trust in media has declined. So the public says you're not trustworthy, but please, please give me more of your product. Um, that, that encourages all the problems on the production side. Uh, and so that's sort of that, the consumption side problem at a large scale, but at a, all of that plays out at a small scale too, where we're just like focusing on this stuff all day long, um, reading things that, you know, tickle the ears that confirm our own biases uh, and, and just blasting it out to all of our friends and acquaintances at, at, a, at a really wild scale that we would find bizarre if it, if it weren't so quick and easy. Um, a thought experiment that I ask people to do in the book is like, imagine if you shared as many news articles as you do right now, but you had to do it in 1995 with a Xerox machine and the post office and maybe um, making copies on VHS of the news segments you want to share. And then you mailed it out with like a Polaroid picture of yourself to your 200 or 500 or 1000 Facebook friends. Like, that's the actions of a crazy person, but you do that all day long, every week on Facebook and wonder what's bad with it. So maybe, maybe they should start charging for each share on social media. <laughs> that would be, uh, that would actually be a good idea to fix social media much better than most of the other ones out there. <laughs> this podcast is presented to you by CBF Church Benefits. At CBB, your benefits are our ministry. Did you know that CBB offers every participant an opportunity to create a comprehensive financial plan with a certified financial planner at Empower Retirement, free of charge? Learn more about completing your financial plan at churchbenefits.org backslash financial planning. As an incentive for our ordained participants, CBB will apply $500 to your retirement account when you complete a financial plan. It's a small grant-funded way we can invest in your future. Please visit CBF Church Benefits website 
at churchbenefits.org to learn more about CBB, our benefit services, and financial wellness opportunities designed to help you thrive in your mission and ministry. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. Let's talk about confirmation bias. Uh, you wrote, most people affected by our knowledge crisis won't so dramatically alter their lives, but uh, accumulation of smaller changes matter too. How we handle knowledge and how we assess truth claims are, are crucial to the development and outworking of our faith as Christians. The reality is that that most people consume the media that merely reinforces what they already, uh, you know, how they already view themselves, their neighbor, the world. And I'm afraid that in the last decade or more, most people have rooted out of their lives any media that infringes on that worldview. You know, you won't catch me watching OAN or, or Fox News. Mm-hmm. So how do we talk about these matters when the vast majority of people are just going to lean towards their confirmation bias? Yeah. I mean, one of the one of the big things I recommend is just really scaling down and and narrowing your media consumption um, so that it's it's focused overwhelmingly on a pretty small group of issues that you've decided you're going to know well. Um, and what that would look like, I think, is if someone were to really commit to it, is that on those issues, you're going to have a, a broader consumption um, because you want to know sort of the whole state of the conversation on the subject, um, but also a deeper consumption where hopefully you're reading like, um, you know, think tank papers on the subjects, books on the subject, um, like things that will take you in greater depth. I think it's not really possible to be sort of just a general interest news consumer taking in a little bit of everything all day, every day from the outlets that you tend to like and have that turn out well. Um, You're going to end up with just like a superficial knowledge. You're going to not know what you don't know. Like that's the the really big thing. And this is a problem within journalism as well. Um, We just, we don't know what we don't know. And so it used to be, uh, and I, I think that this is something that we should move back to more in journalism, that you would have journalists assigned to a beat, like the, a, a topic that they covered all the time and that they developed real subject matter expertise about. Um, and as readers, we should sort of have a beat as well, like a few things that we're going to know well and that we're going to be able to look at a wide array of, of coverage from different political perspectives And because we have that developed subject matter expertise, that makes it a lot easier to figure out, well, okay, this this is a solid report, but the reporter is, um, you know, being swayed by his own views here. 
so I'm going to disregard that part, but this other big chunk of his article is really well done and that's, you know, valuable information um, to be able to distinguish like that is very difficult if you're just sort of trying to do generalist consumption on a whole on a superficial level on a, on a, on a wide range of issues where you will tend to fall into only watching things or reading things that you agree with. So, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, there's so much of the heart of the matter here is how do we, and we'll get to the church here in just a second, and certainly you wrote this from a faith perspective, um, how do we even, how do we even pull people back from, you know, helping them recognize, you know, yeah, you've limited where, where you view your needs. Oh, take for my, myself, for example, like, I, I'm not kidding. I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to, you're not going to find me watching anything on OAN or, or Fox News. In fact, anytime those kinds of things popped up on my social media feed or certainly on YouTube, uh, you know, right click the, the toggle and make sure that it doesn't show up again. You know, so mm -hmm. <laughs> how do we invite people into diversifying their, as you said, both diversifying and minimizing um, when, when maybe they don't recognize that within themselves? Yeah. Or maybe they've become so entrenched on, on those things that, you know, they're not going to pick that up. They're not going to see that thing because they've, they've physically or digitally removed those things from their lives. Right. Um, well, okay, let me separate those and start with minimizing because I think that's potentially a little bit easier. You know, it, it's tough to try to, like, when you, when you perceive, um, when you perceive this as a problem in someone else, like a loved one, but you know, they're an adult, you can't cut their cable, you can't put like a search filter on their internet. Um, minimizing, I think of the two is probably the easier task. Uh, because, you know, you can invite them for dinner, you can invite them to parties, you can do things together, you can, like, if you're in church together, you can be having like, come out to this, this church thing that we're doing. Um, and every hour that they're spending, like, with you, with other friends, um, with other family members doing better things, not scrolling. Um, you know, that's an hour of attention that didn't go to like lies and nonsense and, and that's good. Um, so I think minimizing through um, that kind, like helping people to reform their habits um, is something that, that is maybe more feasible and something that you can do without like having a big confrontation about it, right? Like you can invite someone to dinner and not say it's because I don't want you watching Fox News so much. Um, and so that's that's a little bit easier to do, perhaps. Um, on the subject of diversifying someone else's news consumption, like that's going to be hard to do. Um, one thing that I would suggest, well, two things. One is I tell a story in the book um, about this psychological phenomenon called the Ben Franklin effect. And it's named that because when uh, Ben Franklin was like in the, I think it was the Pennsylvania legislature and he was trying to get some appointment within the legislature um, and he got it, but there was a, a new lawmaker who voted against him and he realized like, oh, this guy does not like me, but also he's gonna be very successful and powerful in this body and I don't wanna have him against me. And so what Ben Franklin did was he heard that this guy had a book that he'd been wanting to read. And so he sent a note and was like, hey, can I borrow this book from you? Because it's like a great book and you're the only one who has it. 
And so the guy sent it over um, and Ben Franklin read it and returned it. And then the next time they saw each other in person, um, they were suddenly friends. Like this guy's whole opinion of him changed. And the, the Ben Franklin effect is that if you ask someone to help you uh, who doesn't like you, it, it very frequently will incline them to you. Um, it will make them like you in a way they did not before. And there are different you know, explanations for why this happens. Um, one is that it's like flattering to be asked for help and to be told that you have something or have some expertise or skill that the, the person asking doesn't have. Um, another one is that like they feel invested in your welfare at that point. So I think one way that if you have someone who you're worried is in a state of knowledge crisis, um, you can ask them to help you with your media consumption. Um, and that not only will that like incline them to you to maybe hear what you have to say on this subject, um, they also might like legitimately point out blind spots that you don't know you have. Um, and it would create space for those conversations to happen naturally and not in an accusatory sense towards them because they're coming to help you and then you can sort of casually offer something that might be helpful to them and they might be more receptive to it at that point. Um, but the other thing that I would say is, you know, in those conversations, like, I think it's, it's possible to more explicitly say, like, I'd like to, like, find out what people are, are going to be more open to. So for example, um, my mom and I have some pretty different ideas about, uh, politics and media. And I've told her, you know, she wants to send me things and I've told her, you know, I'm never gonna watch videos, like especially you wanna send me like these 20 minute YouTube videos, like I'm, it's just realistically, I'm not gonna watch those. You can send me written things, you can send me articles and I will, I will look at those as long as you stop sending me the videos and you know, I, I'll, I'll look at the articles and we can talk about that. So like talking, like having that sort of realistic conversation of like, what can we trade back and forth that you can like actually consider and we can talk about in a way that's not going to turn contentious. Um, but the last thing I would say on that subject, and, and I write about this in the book, is that like my strong inclination when I see someone that I think is confused about um, the media they're consuming and confused about what's true, my strong inclination is to like want to fix them. Um, but that isn't, uh, that isn't always what's going to happen. Um, you know, like God has a role in this too. And I was reminded as I was writing of that, um, that passage where Paul writes, you know, that one plants and another waters, but God brings the harvest. Uh, you're not, you can plant and you can water on this sort of thing. You're not necessarily going to be the one that brings the harvest. And it might be a really slow harvest and you might move away somewhere else and never even see the harvest in that person's life. Um, and so, yeah, I would just, you know, there are things you can do, but I would just encourage people to, to like sort of hold their expectations about like fixing someone else's um, information consumption habits uh, pretty lightly because you may not be there to see it done and you may not be the, the person who actually accomplishes that. We see how an allegiance to certain media worldviews and political persuasions uh, is ripping our communities apart. But um, when you take a peek behind the curtain of how it affects the local church, it's it's staggering. Um, the Trump era alone has ripped congregations apart, uh, forced ministers to resign, 
fast lane the departure of people that were already you know already teetering on the edge of of quitting the church um it's also created this false notion that you can either be in a conservative church or a liberal church and there's no room for theological diversity within a congregation how, how are you seeing this era of of misinformation uh, affecting the church yeah um well, one of the things that I, I wrote and that I've shared elsewhere is uh, I kept coming across with before I started writing the book and, that, and as I was researching it, like eerily similar um, statements from pastors in, in interviews I did and just like random folks on social media, um, in other news articles, where they would all say like almost the exact same phrase of, well, as a pastor, I get people for an hour a week, but Fox News or Facebook or MSNBC or whatever gets them for 15 or 20 hours a week. And I can't compete with that as a matter of discipleship. Um, and I think understanding that what we do with our time um, and our mental habits and where we place our attention very much is a matter of discipleship is really crucial. Um, I think it it has caught a lot of churches by surprise because, you know, we, we sort of think about like reading the news as a neutral to good thing, like being well-informed about the world. Um, and over the past 20 years, reading the news has gone from maybe something that you do, you know, for 15 minutes over breakfast, or maybe you watch an hour long news show in the evening to just like this deluge of information um, and so it it really has become a new matter of discipleship what we what we do um with our with our time here and, and how we are are spending our mental energy uh it because it's going to totally shape what we think is important who we think is on our team um and and so yeah that can split congregations if you have half of a congregation spending 20 hours a week on fox and you have half spending 20 hours a week on msnbc and then they're only coming together for one or two hours at church that's not going to be enough to overcome like they're not going to be unified because of those two hours when they're deeply divided and viewing each other as enemies for those 20 hours yeah, at the same time, why do you think this particular particular era alone has caused such devastating effects within the church? You know, I, I think about this is not the only time we've had um, polarizing issues, polarizing politicians. Um, you know, but why do you think this this particular era has caused such devastating effects within the church? Yeah, I mean, I well, so I think there's two things going on here. One is that for all of us, um, maybe, maybe I guess not for the very youngest adults now, but for, for most of us from like at least 30 on up, our like recent cultural memory is like the middle of the 20th century where, uh, you know, there were some, some, certainly some crazy things going down and some deep political disagreements, but especially as you get into like the 1990s, um, there was a, a lot of consensus politically and and also I mean you know there I don't want to like overstate things but you can you can look even at like 
policy positions in the two major parties, there was way more overlap in the 50s and 60s than there is now to the point that you can find editorials from that era saying like, maybe we need to be more polarized so voters actually have options. These two parties are too alike. Um, and so that comparative level of um, what from where we sit now frequently can look like pretty calm politically. That seems like the norm to us. But of course, as you said, it's, it's not really the norm and expecting to get back to that is probably not super realistic. And I apologize if you can hear my my kids are walking past my office door right now and uh, raising some objections. It's uh, totally to cool. It, it, it pretty much personifies the church today. Just you know, <laughs> they need their opinions to to be heard. Um, um, the other thing that, that I would say about why now is just, you know, again, it, it really goes back to the way that we have the whole news in our, our pockets now. Um, it, it used to be that if you weren't holding the paper, if you weren't watching TV, and there were so many places, so many contexts in which it was inappropriate to do that stuff, you had to just stop. You had to not be arguing about politics because you have to like do your job and talk to other people about work stuff or talk to other people about church stuff. And there were like boundaries of of um, propriety that restrained a lot of it. But now it literally is just all the time. And so, you know, you, you step away from someone for three minutes to go to the bathroom. And while you've been gone, they pulled out their phone and got riled about something on Twitter. So it's just that constant drip, drip, drip of those animosities and those divisions are always getting at us, always, you know, coming into our minds and inserting themselves in situations where they did not used to be. The church has always had bullies. Um, just read the New Testament letters, and if, if you don't believe me, but it seems like the <laughs> the the bullies are are uh, stomping the halls through the church today. Um, they're they're taking a page from the tactics that they're seeing from radio and podcast personalities, politicians, and, and the television discourse. And for local church ministers. Um, it's becoming increasingly difficult to manage those types of, of conflict. Um, you know, so for those listening, um, you know, feeling exhausted from that, I think it's important to note, you know, both reading your book and experiencing this as, as a local pastor myself, um, that, you know, you're not alone, that this is something that's existing within many of our congregations. But also, I think it's a call to prepare yourself to manage conflict, to be mm -hmm. trained and equipped to be that non-anxious presence to um, engage these conversations. At the end of the day, the, the church matters more um, than people realize. Community, genuine fellowship, and accountability are remarkably essential aspects of our faith journey. In community with others, we can hear diverse perspectives and hold up what others claim to be true to examine um, properly. In the book, you you are calling people to this type of community. Why do you think it's so important? I think it's really important because, you know, we all have our sins and our blind spots and ignorance and, and things that we're getting wrong and we don't even know that we're getting wrong, but they're not all the same. And being in community means that we can be highlighting for each other things that we've gotten wrong and that we've missed. You know, I can point out to you something that you uh, didn't realize or didn't understand, and you can do the same for me. Um, and 
and I think loneliness and, and isolation, which is such a growing problem in our society, is a huge contributing factor to all of this that's that's going on, to all of this confusion. Um, because when we're when we're just so alone with our thoughts and taking in this huge amount of information and then just processing it solo um, with no one to sort of check ourselves against, I think that's a that's a major reason why we, we go awry because there's no one to say, like as you as you start to take a wrong turn, there's no one to say, hey, don't not that way. And then before you know it, you're way off on that way, um, where it becomes much harder to come back. And so I think Christians, we, we do have, if we can preserve community, if we can can keep um, being in in like thick communal relationships with people, even though it can be very difficult um, when we have these conversations and these disagreements going on, I think that is a an asset that for for retaining a grasp on on truth and and reality in our in our politics and in our society i think that's an asset that that many people increasingly don't have uh, and so you know obviously it's it's vital to preserve and and uh, grow church community just in its own right and and we would believe that anyway as christians but i think it's especially important right now uh, to to keep that going and to stay in church week in and week out and and essentially like as on, on the, the congregant side to not become the people about whom our pastors are saying like i i just can't compete with their news consumption like that that's i think sort of like the the worst case scenario for me for 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 a, a pastor to say like well I, I don't really know how to disciple her because i i can't compete with how much time she spends on twitter the week we're recording this, uh, Alex Jones, um, how do you describe him accurately? Maybe we, we shouldn't even try. Um, He's he was a media yeah. personality. Yeah, that's that's one way to put it. He, he was found guilty in, in a defamation lawsuit after he spent years claiming that the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting was a hoax. And this was uh, the first of many trials to come. But after all the lies, Alex will have to pay $4.1 million to two families that brought the lawsuit against him. Um, this is the first time, and, and I don't know how long, that someone has actually been held accountable for the impact of their lives, especially for their personal financial gain. Uh, do you think this will, will set a precedent? Do you think media outlets will be more careful about the lies that they're peddling? Yeah, I mean, I I hope so. Uh, there, there was one other instance of this in recent memory, which was that the uh, Dominion voting machine company. Um, they make some of the voting machines that people were claiming uh, were, I think they, they claimed that the, the company like set them to be fraudulent and to give votes to uh, Joe Biden instead of Donald Trump. And they sued some of these close, uh, prominent Trump associates for defamation and were uh, I don't I don't know if there were any judgments rendered. I don't recall, but there were definitely some settlements, I believe, where, you know, the, it, the, the people being sued uh, saw the way things were going in court, um, that they were going against them and, and paid out. And so you do see that that threat of financial consequences can can suddenly inspire in people a regard for truth. Um, this is a tricky subject, though. The American defamation and libel laws are comparatively, 
it's a comparatively high hurdle here to prove that someone is, is legally culpable for something false that they've published. Um, and I, I really, I understand the, the desire to, to make those, um, to sort of lower that hurdle the way that it is, for example, in England. Uh, but the, the problem is that, that that's a popular solution with, for example, uh, former President Donald Trump. He was always going on about how he wanted to loosen up those libel laws because he wanted to just be able to sue whatever media outlets that he did not like um, and tie them up in litigation, which by itself is costly, even if you win the case. Um, and so, yeah, I think in these really egregious cases like Alex Jones, like the voting uh, machine lawsuits, you will see uh, that happen. And that's a good thing. Um, and I, I hope that, that that sort of accountability continues. But in terms of being a large scale solution, I don't know that that will be um, forthcoming unless we change those laws, which comes with its own downside. But I will say that does bring up the subject of of corrections and, and of, of something that I frequently recommend to people as like a really quick rule of thumb, sort of a baseline for should you be looking at this media outlet that you like is do they issue corrections and, and hopefully do they issue them before they're threatened with a defamation lawsuit? Um, because any outlet that is not issuing corrections, 99.9% uh, .9 chance is not that they're not getting anything wrong, it's that they don't care when they get things wrong. Um, so that is something that I, I always recommend to people as a quick rule of thumb of should you be spending time here? Because um, people get things wrong and if they won't admit it, then you know, that's you've a pretty clear indicator of not just that they have a strong perspective, but that they are dishonest. Lastly, uh, how do you imagine this book being used by clergy and local churches? I mean, I hope it's useful. I don't know if it's... Um, I think it could certainly be like a, a small group style discussion. Um, a lot of the a lot of the the chapters are early on are more like topically focused. Um, I guess it depends on your small group culture whether that's uh, going to be useful to you. And by topically focused, I mean as opposed to like concrete advice for the changes you should make in your life. That's mostly grouped together at the end. Um, but I, I hope it's useful for, for clergy and for churches in sort of thinking through the big picture of this idea um, that we have this knowledge crisis. And, and the way in which I hope it's useful is, you know, as I have to make like little elevator pitches for the book, like people always want to know, what's your book about? And I got to tell them in like 30 seconds, which is impossible because it's like 65,000 words. Um, but the it's always tempting to say, well, it's about misinformation, right? Because you, that's a term people hear a lot and people are gonna know what I'm talking about if I say it's about misinformation. Um, but it's really not about misinformation itself um, because it's not really about the, the information or the knowledge, it's about the knower and how we are as knowers and how we take in knowledge and discern truth. And so I think what I'm hoping clergy and, and congregations will come away from the book understanding is that it's it's about us more than what's out there. Um, and we can't probably change what's going on out there. You know, we can't uh, get rid of social media. We can't um, control how everyone else is consuming all this information. 
but we can control what we're doing with our own time and our attention uh, and our, our the, the, the habits that we have, the, the intellectual virtues that we're cultivating or not cultivating as the case may be. Um, and so I think that is very much something that is, uh, it's, I mean, it's part of discipleship. It's, it's, it's a, a, the, the knowledge crisis that we have is very much a, a discipleship crisis, I think, from a, for Christians. Uh, and so focusing, refocusing from everything is so bad out there to how can we make ourselves better suited as Christians, as people of truth, people who follow a God of truth to deal with this well. That's what I would hope it would accomplish. Our guest is Bonnie Christian. The book is Untrustworthy. Learn more about Bonnie's work at bonniechristian.com. Bonnie, it's great to have you back on the podcast. Uh, thank you for calling us to build what is good, grounded in God's love. Thank you so much. Before we wrap up, we need to tell you about one more of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Are you looking for a Bible study resource for your church? Responding to an invitation from the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship of Virginia, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has produced Bible study resources that is available for free of charge. The study title, Faithful Curiosity, Five-Week Study of Luke and Acts, deals with three passages from Luke and two passages from Acts. It offers Bible study methods and provides two interpretive essays for each passage. The writers are BSK faculty, staff, students, and alumni. Download this resource for free today at bsk.edu backslash faithful. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Check out cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh yeah, I think we mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support. 